Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. On the 16th of August 2021, Muhyiddin Yassin resigned as Prime Minister of Malaysia, with Ismail Sabri Yaqub sworn in as the new Prime Minister a week later, making him Malaysia's third Prime Minister in two years. This marked the return to power of UMNO, or the United Malays National Organisation, and the graft-tainted coalition that had been ousted from power in 2018. Meanwhile, another former Prime Minister, Najib Razak, is eyeing a return to Parliament, notwithstanding a conviction and 12-year prison sentence for abuse of power and ongoing trials for corruption. His wife, Rosma Mansur, is also now facing three corruption charges. To talk to us about the politics of public prosecution in Malaysia and the problem of corruption, I am joined by Associate Professor Salim Farah. Salim is Director of Islamic Law and Associate Director of the Centre for Asian and Pacific Law at the University of Sydney and an Associate Professor in the Sydney Law School. He researches in comparative and Islamic laws with focuses on law and development in predominantly Muslim states the legal accommodation of Muslim minorities, and the Malaysian legal system, especially in criminal justice. Salim's latest book, co-edited with Paul Subramaniam, is called Law and Justice in Malaysia, 2020 and Beyond, and it was launched last night. Salim, congratulations, and thank you for joining us today on SIAC Stories. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It was wonderful to attend your book launch last night, and I was really interested to hear that the new book and the symposium on which it was based uh, were planned in 2018, which seems like a very long time ago when it comes to thinking about Malaysian politics. What was happening in Malaysia at that time in 2018, and what's changed since? Well, in 2018, we, we still had a reformist government. Malaysia had been a very stable country for decades. And the, the Barisan National government had been in power. Economically, the country was developing, doing quite well. But there was a sense of things not going quite right. And uh, the whiff of corruption was too strong for, for many in, in the opposition, for many Malaysians. They just had enough. And so the Pakistan government was swept into power. So this was a, a combination of events. Uh, from the previous election, in actual fact, when in Peninsular Malaysia, the Barisan National Government lost its majority. Uh, it, it only retained power as a result of what was going on in Sabah Sarawak. But uh, that momentum carried on into the second general election, and the sense of corruption was too great for the majority of the people, and so it was thrown out, so we had a reformist government. So the hope was, was that things were going to change quite dramatically and would have much more emphasis on law and justice, on civil liberties, on accountability, and that the big fish would finally be caught and brought to justice and ordinary Malaysians would begin to feel the fruits of economic uh, and political development. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. In 2018, things were beginning to go off the rails a bit. And uh, so we, we saw the new coalition beginning to crumble and not really fulfilling a lot of its promises. And also, uh, they were focusing a lot on these show trials. And uh, show trial of Razak was one, was one of these. And it seemed to be focusing rather too much on that rather than on some other broader questions. And so that led to some of the problems. Okay, you've referred there to the, the whiff of corruption and the show trials and Abdul Rajak. I assume that you're referring to the 
scandal surrounding the now defunct state investment fund 1MDB. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Well, 1MDB was a state investment fund. It was also a government strategic development company owned by the Malaysian Ministry of Finance. And it was first exposed in 2015. And um, according to the United States Department of Justice, they think this involved approximately 4.5 billion American dollars worth of funds, which have been misappropriated. And they implicated Datuk Sri Najib Razak, um, so who at that time he held positions of the Minister of Finance and he was chairman of the 1MDB advisory board, as well as being the prime minister. So the, the main allegation against him related to the transfer of 700 million US dollars, allegedly from this SRC International, which is a subsidiary of 1MDB, into his personal bank accounts. He denied the allegation and claimed that the money was a personal donation from the Saudi royal family. Now, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission commenced an investigation following out the allegation. But you had a, a new attorney general who was appointed by the prime minister, uh, Tan Sri Mohammed Apandiani, and uh, he cleared him of any wrongdoing after finding that the money was donated to Datuk Sri Najibreza, but without any contractual consideration. That was the initial decision. So that, there was a sense of justice not having been done in relation to, to this. And uh, so then you have the, the loss of the 14th general election, 2018, and then you've got your new Pakistan Harapan government, led by Tun Dr. Mahathir Mohammed, his second go at being prime minister. He appointed Tommy Thomas as the new attorney general, and Datuk Sri Mohammed Shukri Abdullah as the new chief commissioner of the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission. So this new prosecution team under different political leadership then reopened the investigation against Datuk Sri Najib Razak and charged him with 42 counts of corruption and then money laundering related to 1MDB. And he was indeed convicted under that new team, is that right? He was. So now we've only had one trial so far and there's still plenty of other to be prosecuted. But he, yes, he was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years. But he is appealing that current conviction and we're still in the process of appeal. How can he possibly be positioning to return to a political leadership position if he's been convicted and sentenced for 12 years? Okay, well, uh, as with any system uh, within the common law type of system, you have appeals. Then, So convictions aren't final. So if there's a reasonable prospect of success, which he obviously thinks there is, then that appeal can be overturned. And so then his slate will be wiped clean. But in addition to this, uh, he can be pardoned by the Yangli Pertuan Agong. And so he, he might be relying on that as well. Now, arguably, that would be a hard push, certainly if he's still uh, found guilty, if the appeal is unsuccessful. But I think any intervention by the Yangli Pertuan Agong is unlikely. But I think he's hoping his appeal is going to be successful. So this was certainly, I would imagine, an exciting time to be writing a book about law and politics in Malaysia. Oh. <laughs> yes. So uh, let's turn now to this particular focus of yours, which is in relation to the politics of public prosecution. And I understand you've been collaborating with a colleague on this work. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role of the public prosecutor in Malaysia, which lies with the Attorney General and the sort of discretionary powers that this position has? Sure. I've been working in the last three years on this with uh, Dr. Munzil Mohammed from uh, Multimedia University. And we've been examining the sort of the system of public prosecution in Malaysia and the influence of politics in discretionary decision making. Now, it's important to remember that 
Malaysia's public prosecution system is a relic uh, of the colonial system or the, of the British system. So it still has that element of private prosecution within it. So if we were to compare this with the civil law systems, which we find in Germany and some Latin American countries, there you have compulsory prosecution. So once there have been charges laid, then the prosecutor must continue with the prosecution. Now, within the common law system and the English system, which Malaysia has inherited, there is a discretion which is vested in the prosecutor. So he can decide to pursue the charges or not. And he makes decisions in accordance with the public interest. Now, um, in Australia, we also have this system. But the key in Australia is that we have a, a separate director of public prosecutions who is totally independent. Now, in Malaysia, they have the old English system, where, which combines the attorney general with the public prosecutor. So they are one and the same people. And the attorney general is a, a member of the government and a politician. The problem is, is that some of these high-profile decisions, which will be made by the attorney general in person, may have the influence of politics rather than simply what's in the best interest of the country. So let's explore that a little. Could you um, tell me what sort of problems arise through defining this concept of the public interest? Is that open to wide interpretation? That is the problem. What is in the public interest? Now, in England and Wales, and also here in Australia, we have guidelines and statutory guidelines which define what that public interest is. So there are separate criteria. The problem is in Malaysia, there are no statutory guidelines. They may have their own criteria which are uh, not made transparent or in the public view, but the whole point is we don't know what they are. And so there may be some particular interest which is prioritized over another, and we don't have any basis. We don't know what the basis is for that. So we could have the shady hand of politics coming in uh, to determine particular cases. That's been the concern with some of our high-profile cases which we examine. Salim, are there any checks and balances in place? I mean, who is the Attorney General accountable to? Ultimately, the Attorney General is a member of the government, so is responsible to the Prime Minister. Yes, and to Parliament. Right. So, of course, there are many concerns around the independence of the public prosecutor, especially as it applies to politically sensitive cases. Are you able to give us some examples from the recent period? Well, obviously, with Anwar, the, the famous ones, that the decisions to prosecute, you've got Anwar Ibrahim. So, since uh, 1998, the cases concerning sodomy. And so if, if you go back to, to 1998, uh, he was charged with and convicted of corruption and sodomy, but uh, was then acquitted for the latter charge following appeals to the federal court. And in 2009, he's charged again for committing sodomy in a separate event, uh, this time with his personal assistant, and then acquitted by the high court in 2012. But then we have in 2014, the Court of Appeal overturning that decision and then sentencing Anwar back to five years in prison. Now, during the final appeal before the federal court in 2015, court affirmed the decision made by the Court of Appeal, but then he receives a royal pardon. Now, for all these cases, Datuk uh, Sri Anwar, he claimed that all of the charges were politically motivated. So at the end of the day, he was a very prominent member of the opposition, and he was challenging for the leadership of the country. And so these were charges which... Uh, didn't have to be laid, and whether the evidence was uh, strong enough, we don't really know. So if we were to look at what subsequently happened, one would uh, have some doubts over whether the evidence was sufficient in those cases. So that's the first example of 
the influence of politics and the decisions to prosecute. So with Anwar Ibrahim, then we have some decisions not to prosecute. And obviously with Abdul Razak and over one MDB to begin with, with prosecutor Tansri Pandiani, who said there just there wasn't enough evidence. Uh, but then we have a new attorney general, Toby Thomas, and then charging with 42 counts of corruption. So when they, when they were dealing with exactly the same type of evidence, how can you justify one, then not the other? So that seemed to be rather perplexing. And also we have the decisions not to prosecute of Lim Guaneng over land purchases. So this allowed him to contest his seat in the parliamentary general election. So if we had an independent prosecutor, these decisions wouldn't seem to be uh, politically motivated. But when you have the combination of the roles of the attorney general and the public prosecutor, then it's very difficult not to say these are political. That's part of the problem. So those, those three cases, I would say, are key examples of the problem we're talking about. So where is the incentive for Malaysia to undertake reform in this area if these discretionary powers are so easily used for political weapons rather than as tools for justice? Who's going to call for and implement change? That's a good question. Society has changed dramatically in the last decade. We have the influence of the internet and social media. And um, if you were to look at some of the, the newspapers online, uh, they're much more critical and much more engaged with ordinary Malaysians than the, the mainstream newspapers and mainstream media and the television. And so people are now much more uh, focused on what's going on online than they are TV and, and radio. And so this is, I think this is representing part of the sea chain of, of Malaysia. So if the government wants to be seen as legitimate, it needs to engage with these concerns as the people are now more aware of what's happening. And as they become more aware of what's happening, they have more expectations of their leaders. Ultimately, it's in the interests of the Malaysian government to be more accountable. If they want to get elected in the next election, unless they're going to radically control the media, which, which they might, but I doubt. But if they're radically going to control the media, then they're going to have to change. So because of that, I'm quite optimistic. Well, that's wonderful to hear. We, we love a bit of optimism in the SEAC Stories podcast because at times these topics, particularly in relation to corruption and um, you know democratic governance, can be a bit pessimistic. So that is good to hear. I wonder also if there might be change from within the public prosecutions uh, system because you've, you've talked about the strain that this system has been under uh, for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about how this strain manifests? Yes, look, Malaysia has a very high crime rate. In terms of the number of cases that prosecutors dealing with, in 2018, there was some research carried out by Zaytun Hamim, Mohammed Bahrain Uthman, and Ahmad Ridwan Abdul Rani. And uh, they found that more than 1,677,000 cases were registered in the lower courts uh, in Malaysia in 2018 across all Malaysian states. And they had an incredibly high prosecution workload. And so one of the defense lawyers whom they interviewed said there are tons of cases overburdening the prosecutors. Some of them even have 12 cases a day to handle. They're just too busy and their cases are overlapping with each other. So when you think of that, so how are they going to be able to exercise their discretion effectively in that type of environment? Now, Malaysia is not a crime-free country. If we look at the world population review and crime rate by country 2020, Malaysia is only just outside the top 20 of countries with the highest crime rates. So it scores 60.66 in the crime index. So by comparison, I know you're an expert in Indonesia, 
Indonesia has a crime index of 46.26. And as you know, Indonesia is a much bigger country than Malaysia is. Um, even India uh, is 43.32. If you compare Malaysia then with these countries, you can see that its crime rate is very, very high. And also, Malaysia has a very small number of prosecutors. So currently, in Malaysia's largest three states, Selangor, Johor, and Sabah, there are 62, 30, and 19 prosecutors, respectively. So this is a smaller number than Australia, which has a population of 7 million less and a much lower crime rate. And so the workloads are also, they've been impacted by some legal reforms, technological changes, and all of this has added to workloads and to delays. So when you have a discretionary-based system, it's going to be difficult for them to exercise their discretion effectively and efficiently and appropriately in those circumstances. So it's quite easy for politics and political influence to be exercised and for shortcuts to be made in that type of environment. Yes, exactly. I'd like to uh, just bring in the COVID pandemic now and to ask you about the state of emergency introduced by the Malaysian King in January 2021 on the back of the COVID pandemic. What happens in a Malaysian context to the constitution and to parliament in a state of emergency? Well, parliament doesn't sit. And so it just means that you have ordinances which are passed. So there isn't any scrutiny of any legislation. So just the government, in effect, rules by diktat. So it can do almost what it likes. The police force and sometimes the army will enforce the law. So in effect, civil liberties are put to one side. This was passed on the basis of protecting public health. Now, obviously, there was massive concern. How can you suspend parliament, which is the the major democratic body in Malaysia for so long? Uh, Well, the the argument was that there were some elections going on and the elections were reasons for spreading of the virus. And so, um, unfortunately, uh, we have to suspend democratic processes. That was the basis. Probably going to see more of this. um, So we just have to keep an eye on what's happening. So Yes, yeah, so Parliament is suspended and the Constitution, in effect, is suspended. Civil liberties are suspended. So how long is this going to go on for? So that, that's, that's the real concern. So the powers of the Yang Nipoto Gong here are, are relevant and decisions ultimately are made as a result of his good sense and the advisors who are behind him. Um, now, you said that you're optimistic about reform and it's interesting to hear your comments about the influence of the international community or um, external influences, social media, Malaysians accessing news through their phones, seeing different standards around the world in regards to public prosecution. If this system of prosecution were to be depoliticized, what sort of changes would you like to see made? Okay, I think the most important thing is to give the courts more powers and for the courts to have the tools to implement those powers and to be confident about that. So the powers I'm talking about really are judicial review. Now, Malaysia, the last 20, 30 years, and really since 1988, hasn't been confident in exercising powers of judicial review. So during former Prime Minister Mahathir's time, he didn't like an independent court, to be frank. He found the the courts to be an impediment to his development program. And so civil liberties and uh, the independence of the justice system took a step back. So basically, that needs to be reinvigorated and um, the judiciary needs to be more confident to challenge the executive. 
So judicial review is, I would say, crucial to that. Now, currently, in terms of where to apply this to the powers of the public prosecutor, the discretion exercised by the public prosecutor is unfettered, which means that, in theory, you can't challenge that discretion. So it means whatever the public prosecutor decides will happen. Now, that is still the situation, ironically, in Australia. But in Malaysia, as, as we've been saying, the problem is much more acute because of the influence of politics. So we, we do need to have a stronger judiciary who are prepared to intervene. So the power of judicial review. Now, there are some cases in uh, Singapore and also now in Malaysia which are opening up the possibility of the power of the public prosecutor to be challenged. So it may not be unfettered in the future. So I think that's the first thing. So now the problem uh, is also sort of the criteria. What criteria for judicial review will the courts exercise? Now, currently, uh, the courts are worried that if they were to exercise judicial review, they'll be seen to be political as well. That will compound the problem. So how can we depoliticize the judiciary? Our argument, so Dr. Monsa Mohammed and I, we, we say there has to be statutory criteria for the exercise of discretion. So as you know, with a statute, it has to go through the processes of parliament and parliamentary scrutiny. That opens up the whole issue to all a range of political interests. So if that's the case, if it's all the criteria is mentioned in statute, the judges will not feel politically compromised. So I think that's a very important reform which needs to be implemented. And well, finally, is to amend the federal constitution by establishing an independent director of public prosecution. So possibly the, uh, the solicitor general should be the public prosecutor as opposed to the attorney general. And I, if I'm not mistaken, there are discussions about that happening at this time in Malaysia. If the federal constitution can be amended by establishing that independent public prosecutor, as exists in England and Wales and Australia, then I think that would be a, a good step forward. I assume it is quite difficult to amend the constitution. Does it require a public vote? It doesn't need a public vote, but it does require at least two-thirds of the, the Malaysian Houses of Parliament. So that's um, difficult to get. That is part of the problem. So are we going to amend the Malaysian constitution or not? Ultimately, it's whether the government thinks it's in their long-term interests to have this. And so I'm hopeful that they will eventually do that. Well, I think I would like to end on that note of hope and how appropriate, harapan, hope, at the end of this podcast. And so my last question, Salim, is where can we get a copy of your book? That's a good point. <laughs> Published by Sweet Maxwell um, and Thomson Reuters. So it is available on the net. Just look up Sweet and Maxwell and Thomson Reuters and type in Law and Justice in Malaysia 2020 and beyond. Salim Farah and Paul Subramaniam, I think you'll find it. We'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.